0: Well, let's pray, and then we'll get right right into the message. Lord God, would you please unfold the truth concerning your nature and the, the salvation that we have, which is by grace in Jesus Christ. Unfold that to us. We pray that, Lord, you might be able this morning to dispel doubts and confusion that gnaw away at us when we consider some of your scripture. I I pray that you'd help me to be very clear today, Lord. Help me to be very clear, and I pray for the Holy Spirit to work amongst your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to be concluding our series on the doctrines of grace. We come to the last one, and we're not looking at any of the five doctrines. We've already looked at those. What I, I would like to do this morning is to talk about questions or objections that you may have concerning the doctrines of grace. Because when I first came to believe them, I had all kinds of questions, and I had all kinds of objections, and I didn't understand how to put things together. And it took a lot of time and study for me to be able to piece things together, and I hope to help you if that's your situation this morning. Now let's review briefly what those five doctrines are. First one, total inability. Total inability means that men are dead in trespasses and sins, and that because they're dead in trespasses and sins, they're totally unable to come to Jesus Christ or to cooperate with God in their salvation. They're completely cut off from Him. They're depraved. Their nature and their heart is bent towards themselves and towards sin, Their their vision is clouded where they can't see the glory of Christ. The Bible says they can't please God. They can't come to Christ. They cannot understand spiritual things. They can't hear the voice of Christ. They can't see the kingdom. They're completely unable to come to God. That's a desperate condition, isn't it? It's hopeless and helpless and desperate. But that is the biblical position on the state of the natural man, the unregenerate man. Well, the second doctrine helps us with that, because it's the doctrine of unconditional election. And simply put, that doctrine states that before the foundation of the world was ever laid, God chose a segment of the human family that he would save through the work of Jesus Christ. He would Because he's a God of love and mercy, he would not expend his justice on every person that was born into the world, but that he would show that mercy to actually a very, very large group of people. The Bible says it's a group that no man can number. I would guess in the millions, if not the billions, are going to be saved through the blood of Christ. But he made that choice and he didn't make it based on anything foreseen in man, like man's choice or man's repentance or man's faith. Because remember, man's dead in sin. He's not going to make that choice. He's not going to believe and he's not going to repent. He's cut off from God and helpless. So God made that choice based on his mere good pleasure alone. That's why we call it unconditional. It wasn't conditioned upon us. The third doctrine is that of particular atonement. This doctrine states that although the the death of Jesus Christ had reference in one way to all mankind, in another way it zeroes in on the elect and ensures salvation for them. Interestingly, his death makes salvation possible and available for all men, but all men won't take advantage of it. So what it does is it zeroes in on these ones the Bible calls the many, or the sheep, or the church, or the bride, or his people like we read this morning. And it guarantees that they will actually come to Christ by purchasing the saving benefits of the Holy Spirit where he applies the regenerating power to them, opens their eyes, changes their hearts. So it's particular in that respect. It's particular in God's design. The fourth one is his invincible grace. Invincible grace means that God's grace is so powerful that it overcomes all obstacles and all resistance to bring that person into a state of grace. By nature, remember that we are resistant to the glory of God. We are our own God. We want to do our own thing. In order for God to save someone, He's got to change that. And what he does is he changed the nature of the person. He calls them effectually. The Bible says he draws them to Christ. The Bible says he quickens them. He makes them alive together with Christ. He takes off the old heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. By all of those things, we're talking about his invincible grace by which he takes someone who's dead in sins and brings them to Jesus Christ to be saved. And then the last doctrine is the doctrine of divine preservation. And that's a simple one. It simply means that all those whom God has causes, caused to be born again will stay in a state of grace and be eternally saved. None of them will be lost. None of them will be damned. They will all persevere to the end. We're not saying that God saves a person and then that person goes off and leaves Jesus and dies in a state of unbelief. No, we don't. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that if God saves a person, that person will remain In Christ until they die if they have a lapse like Peter did when he denied the Lord three times they will be restored they will not totally or finally fall away they may fall away briefly but God will bring them back he will discipline them and he will lead them on the way to glory and they will be eternally saved so those are the five doctrines of grace now I asked you a while back how many of you were taught these doctrines as a Christian And probably less than half of you understood these doctrines. These these are new to a great majority of our church. And so as I'm teaching this, I realize you might be shocked to hear these things. You might be surprised. You might be confused. You might be confounded. You might not know what to do with all this information. (laughs) And so I thought it would be good for us to wind up our series with just a message where we deal with questions or difficult texts or objections that come to your mind, and do the best we can to answer those biblically. So that's my goal today. So we're going to deal with eight different questions. The first question is, what about 2 Peter 3.9? I'm going to deal with three texts that are difficult when it comes to understanding how they relate to and harmonize with the sovereignty of God. So the first one is 2 Peter 3.9. Let's take a look at that one. The Bible says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, when the Arminian, and I guess I should define that, an Arminian is someone who believes that ultimately salvation is dependent upon man's free will. Okay. When he looks at this text, the way he understands it is that God doesn't want anybody in the world to perish. He wants everybody in the world to come to repentance. And so they say, if that's true, then all that you've been saying, Brian, is out to lunch. <laughs> it's all false. It's all false doctrine. Well, I want to look at this verse closely with you and let's analyze it a little bit let's see it exactly what it is saying and what it's not saying it says that god is patient toward notice the pronouns you not wishing for any to perish but for all i want you to think about those three words you any and all okay he's not he's patient toward you Who is the you that Peter's talking about? Well, look back to the first verse of the entire letter. Second Peter 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the you? It's people who have received a faith. And that's an interesting expression. They received a faith of the same kind as the apostles. That faith is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's writing to believers. He's writing to true believers here. So when he says God is patient toward you, not wishing for any... I would insert, of you to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. That's what I believe was going through the apostle's mind when he wrote this. I'll say it again. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. If it's understood that way, then what he's simply saying is that God is not wishing for any of the elect to perish, but he's waiting for all of the elect to come to repentance, all true believers to be saved. Now, why would I come to that conclusion? Well, it's because he says in the first part of the verse, the Lord is not slow about his promise. What promise is he talking about? Look at verse 8. The verse right before that. It says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. What's the promise he's talking about? Yeah, the coming of Christ, the second coming. Now, if God really didn't want anyone in the world to perish, but everyone in the world to come to repentance, it makes sense that he would bring Jesus back as soon as he possibly could. Like within a, a day or hours or a week of his ascension to heaven. Because every year Jesus delays his coming, more and more people perish. It's been 2,000 years he's delayed his coming. Millions, probably billions have perished in those 2,000 years. Every, if, if God really wants everyone To be saved and none to perish but all to come to repentance he's working against himself by delaying the second coming of christ so this verse to me doesn't make any sense if you take it to mean okay the, the reason why the lord is delaying his coming is because he wants nobody to perish but everyone to come to repentance do you understand why I would come to that conclusion? It just doesn't make any sense to me. But it makes perfect sense if you understand that the reason why Christ is delaying is because he's waiting to every last elect person is converted and saved and then Christ will come. But he's waiting until that last person is converted. He He can't come before then because that person's been chosen to salvation. So that's the way I, I look at 2 Peter 3.9. I, I don't don't know how you look at it, or if you if you think that that's valid or not. But in my mind, that makes sense to me, and it it makes complete sense. Let's look at another difficult text: First Timothy two four. First Timothy two verse four. We'll have to actually start in verse three. First Timothy two three and four. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now again, the Arminian would reason. God wants everyone to be saved. He wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. So unconditional election is a false doctrine. It's not true. And however we understand those verses in the Bible that seem to talk about unconditional election, you've got it wrong. Because right here, <laughs> it says God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I've, talked, I've defined an Arminian for you. Here's another word that you may not be familiar with, a Calvinist. These are two schools of thought within Christianity. You've got Arminians and you've got Calvinists. They disagree with each other. The Arminian says man's salvation is ultimately because of his choice. The Calvinist says salvation is ultimately God's choice. Okay, that's why they're different. Now, one of the ways a Calvinist understands verses 3 and 4 is he says God desires all kinds of men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All sorts of men. They they believe it's not talking about all men without exception. It's talking about all men without distinction. And they get that from verses 1 and 2 where he says, I want you to pray for all men. And then he starts listing kinds of men like verse 2, for kings. That's a kind of man. So they would say, Verses 3 and 4 are saying that God desires all kinds of men, kings and commoners, black and white, rich and poor, all kinds of people throughout the world to be saved. Now that might be a correct interpretation, but I don't hold it myself. Okay, that is one possibility, and I'll let you grapple with it, whether you think that's valid or not. But I'd like to give you a long quote by one of my favorite preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon this morning. Charles Spurgeon, when he came to the church that he ministered in, had a predecessor years before who was very famous. His name was Dr. John Gill. Dr. John Gill was a massive intellect. In fact, he I have his commentaries in my library. He he gives, gives his comments in every verse in the Bible. I mean, it's an incredible feat. And he was very respected. But... Spurgeon and Dr. Gill differed a little bit on a few things. And so when Spurgeon came to 1 Timothy 2.4 to preach on it, this is what he says in his introduction. Shall we try to put another meaning into the text than that which it fairly bears? I think not. You must, most of you, be acquainted with the general method in which our older Calvinistic friends deal with this text. All men, say they, that is, some men as if the Holy Ghost could not have said some men, if he had meant some men. All men, say they, that is, some of all sorts of men, as if the Lord could not have said all sorts of men, if he had meant that. The Holy Ghost by the Apostle has written all men, and unquestionably he means all men. I know how to get rid of the force of the alls, according to that critical method which some time ago was very current, but I do not see how it can be applied here with due regard to truth. I was reading just now the exposition of a very able doctor. And here he's talking about Dr. Gill, his predecessor who explains the text. So as to explain it away, he applies grammatical gunpowder to it and explodes it by way of expounding on it. I love this. This is so funny. I thought when I read his exposition that it could have been a very capital comment upon the text if it had read, who will not have all men to be saved, nor come to a knowledge of the truth. Had such been the inspired language, every remark of the learned doctor would have been exactly in keeping. But as it happens to say, who will have all men to be saved, his observations are more than a little out of place. My love of consistency with my own doctrinal views is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of scripture. I have great respect for orthodoxy, but my reverence for inspiration is far greater. I would sooner a hundred times over appear to be inconsistent with myself than be inconsistent with the word of God. That's an awesome statement right there. I never thought it to be any very great crime to seem to be inconsistent with myself, for who am I, that I should be everlastingly consistent? But I do think it a great crime to be so inconsistent with the Word of God that I should want to lop away a bough or even a twig from so much as a single tree of the forest of Scripture. God forbid that I should cut or shape, even in the least degree, any divine expression. So runs the text. And so we must read it. God our savior who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So Spurgeon is basically saying he takes it exactly the way he reads it. He believes that it means all men, not just all kinds of men, like Dr. Gill believed. But then Spurgeon goes on to say this, very important. It is quite certain that when we read that God will have all men to be saved, it does not mean that he wills it with the force of a decree or a divine purpose. For if he did, then all men would be saved. He willed to make the world, and the world was made. He does not so will the salvation of all men, for we know that all men will not be saved. Does not the text mean that it is the wish of God that men should be saved? The word wish gives as much force to the original as it really requires, and the passage should run this way, whose wish it is that all men should be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, I agree with Spurgeon. I believe God has a legitimate, real desire that all men, without exception, would be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And, of course, in your mind, the wheels are turning and you're saying, well, Brian... God can do anything He wants. If He desires the salvation of all men, why doesn't He just save everybody? Right? Isn't that what you're thinking? (laughs) Unless I missed my mark. So why doesn't He save all? It must be that God desires something else more than saving every person. There must be something else He desires even more than saving every person. Now, what would that be? What would God desire even more than saving every person in the world? There's two schools of thought here. I'll give them both to you. One school of thought is that he desires that human beings have self-determination so that any relationship of love that they have with God is real and genuine. This is the Arminian view. They believe to, to preserve man's free will is so valuable to God that he, he won't just override that free will and save everybody. He'll allow man to use that free will to reject him because he values that self-determination and that choice that man makes. Does that make sense? And so he won't override that so he doesn't save all men. Okay, second school of thought. God loves something else more than he loves the idea of saving all men and what he loves even more than that is to manifest the full range of his wrath and His mercy, because that puts His attributes on display. And what God is most concerned with is revealing Himself to His creation. I can find no biblical support for the first option. i am just be honest with you. I can't find anywhere in Scripture that says that God loves human self-determination more than He loves saving all men. But I can find biblical support for the second one. Romans nine twenty-two and 23 tells us, that the second one is what God desires. He wants to display His wrath and His mercy. You see, when the Bible uses the expression the will of God, it can have several different nuances or shades of meaning. Sometimes when it talks about the will of God it's talking about the will of His decree. And what I mean by that is God's sovereign will. This is like His sovereign will was that Jesus Christ would come into the world and die on a cross for sin. Nothing is going to stop that. Absolutely nothing can frustrate that plan, right? But sometimes when the Bible talks about the will of God, it's talking about the will of God's command, like the Ten Commandments, or the command to rejoice always or pray without ceasing. These are commands of God. But those commands are frustrated every day throughout the world by millions of people. People are constantly disobeying the will of God's command. So there's different senses in which the Bible uses the will of God. There is a third way the Bible uses the expression the will of God. The will of God's desire. That's what we have here in 1 Timothy 2.4. And sometimes God desires something that God does not fulfill. He does not make it happen even though he wants it to happen. Perhaps an illustration would help here. In the Revolutionary War, there was a man named Major Andre who committed treason. General George Washington had a decision to make. Would he sign this man's death warrant or not? Now, George Washington was a personal friend of Major Andre. He did not want, on a human level, to sign his death warrant. He had profound compassion on this man. He didn't want him to die But that was not the only consideration that he had in going into this decision. He also had to use wisdom and justice to make this decision. So it was complicated. It wasn't an easy matter for him to come to a decision. In the end, George Washington did sign the death warrant. Major Andre was hung by the neck until dead. Similarly, God has profound compassion on perishing sinners. He doesn't... In and of itself, he doesn't want sinners to perish. But that's not all God has to deal with in making decisions. There's more to it than that. And what is supremely important to God is to display his glory. And if he saved the entire world, he would not be able to display part of the glories, his excellencies and his attributes like justice and wrath. And so God has not decided to save the entire world. He's decided to save a portion of the world and put the full range of his attributes on display. 1 Timothy 2.4, then, I believe, does not crush the doctrine of unconditional election and simply says there is more than one will in God. God can truly and genuinely desire the salvation of all men, and at the same time have chosen before the foundation of the world to save a portion of the human family. Both of them are true, and you have to just accept both. To to believe this way causes tension in your brain. I understand that. There's tension there, and you'll never get it resolved, this side of heaven. You'll never be able to resolve it. It's always going to be there. But one verse in the Bible says God desires the salvation of all. Believe it. It's the word of God. But another portion of the Bible says God has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he shows compassion on whom he shows compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. Folks, that verse is true too. You have to accept both sides and just believe both sides if you're going to be a biblical Christian. Let's look at another one, uh, Matthew 23, verse 37. I'm choosing the most difficult texts that people that believe the way I do have to face. And these are the verses that people bring up again and again and again to argue against the idea that God is sovereign in salvation. Matthew 23, 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now, the way the Arminian understands this verse is he says, invincible grace, that's not true. Look right here, Matthew 23, 37. How often I wanted to save you, but you wouldn't let me. That's the way they understand it. Jesus is trying to save all kinds of people, and those people won't let him save them. Now, is that the way to understand Matthew 23, 37? We're going to really have to get deep into this text this morning, and I really need you to keep your thinking caps on with me. We're going to be looking at context to try to understand the flow and intent of the author. First of all, Jesus is talking about a danger because he compares it to a hen who spreads her wings over her little baby chicks to protect them from the danger that's coming, like a chicken hawk or a fox, right? She's trying to protect her baby chicks. What danger was Jesus talking about? Is he talking about eternal hell as the danger here? Well, there's nothing in the text written about salvation or damnation or hell or heaven or anything like that. Let's see if we can figure out what the danger is from the context. Go back to verse 34. And folks, what, what I'm doing right now, I hope you can kind of learn lessons. So as you read the Bible for yourself, you're learning how to read it in its context. Okay? But look at verse 34. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He says the guilt of all the righteous men is coming upon this generation. It's going to fall on this generation. How did that guilt fall on that particular generation? What happened? Does anybody know your history? What happened within one generation of Jesus speaking these words to Jerusalem? It was destroyed. Practically wiped off the face of the map. The temple was obliterated. Every stone was taken down from the temple. In fact, look at verse 38, the next verse after the one that we've been looking at. Verse 38 says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. What house? The temple. The temple. The danger that Jesus was trying to warn his generation of was the danger of the coming destruction of Jerusalem where a million Jews were killed. It was a holocaust in that day. In fact, in the entire Matthew chapter 24 is dealing with that text. It's dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So the context leads us to understand the danger is not being eternal hell. The, The danger is about this thing that's coming within their generation, which happens to be the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple where a million Jews are going to face their death. Now, who's Jesus talking to? That will help us all in understanding this text. Verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The ones who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. He's talking to Jerusalem. But who's specifically in Jerusalem? What is Matthew 23 all about, you scholars? What's the context of the entire chapter of Matthew 23? Who's he speaking to there? Be more specific. True. Who is he pronouncing these woes on? The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. Eight times in this chapter, he says, woe to you. Now, the word woe means cursed are you, damned are you. It's a very, very strong word. He's talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel. And it was always the religious leaders that were killing the prophets and stoning those sent to her. Jesus, and not only that, but let me also say this the people he's talking to in Matthew 23, he calls hypocrites seven times. He calls them sons of hell, serpents, blind guides. And then he winds the whole thing up and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the ones who kill the prophets and stone those who are center, how often I wanted to gather, not you, but your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks to protect them. But you, leaders, We're not willing. What's he saying? Who is the your children? Who's the children of these leaders? The Jewish people. The people that live in Jerusalem. The ones that are going to be slaughtered in mass within one generation. How often I wanted to gather those people together to spare them from this coming judgment. But you, religious leaders, you weren't willing. You would not bow down to me. God himself shows up in your midst, and you put him on a cross, and you crucify him. And then you stone his apostles, and you kill the prophets that are sent to that generation. And so because of that, the guilt of all the righteous blood is going to fall upon this generation. And that's what 70 AD is all about, and the destruction of Jerusalem. So this text has nothing. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's talking about the Jews, a million Jews, that were crucified in that particular city, in that particular day. It's not saying that Jesus today is trying to save a lot of people and they just won't let him do it. That It's got nothing to do with that. that that's not the meaning of this particular passage. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. Then we've took, taken a look at three difficult texts. Let's look at a fourth question. How can God hold sinners responsible for what they are unable to do? And this one's a doozy. This is a really hard question. Because we've said that man is in a state of total inability. But, and here's that tension again. I'm going to move over here. Okay, over here, man is unable to repent and believe. Bible teaches that. John 6, 44. But the Bible also teaches that man is responsible not to repent. He's responsible if he doesn't repent. He's responsible if he doesn't believe. God will hold him accountable for that. You say Brian where is that in the Bible? John 3, I believe it's verse 18 or 19. Here is verse 18. John 3:18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And remember also the Holy Spirit will convict of sin. Sin because they do not believe in me. Not to believe in Jesus is sin that people will be held accountable for. So you've got these two opposing truths like pillars. Man is unable to believe. God will hold man accountable to believe. Now how is that possible, right? That, this, this is a very, very difficult question. On the surface, it seems unanswerable. But man's inability to believe is man's fault, not God's. God did not create Adam unable to make righteous decisions. Adam was created innocent and upright, according to Ecclesiastes 7.29. So Adam, as our representative, could have chosen either way. He chose the wrong way. And he plunged the whole race into a fallen state because of that. And you say, well, that was Adam. That wasn't me. So God should not hold me accountable for something that Adam did. Okay, on the surface, that also seems unanswerable. But the problem with all of this is that if you want to eliminate God's judgment on you because of Adam's sin, you've also got to eliminate God's salvation for you because of what Christ did. Because both of them work on exactly the same principle. You are condemned because of what Adam did, because of a representative. You are also saved, not because of what you do, because of what your representative did, Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam. Do you understand that? We're saved by grace, which means it's not what I do. It's what he did. I enter into his works and rest in him. So if you want to eliminate condemnation through Adam, you've just lost your salvation because they work on exactly the same principle through a representative. Let's say there's a man who goes to the government and says, I need you to provide me an income for myself and my family because I'm disabled and I can't work. And they look at that man and say, well, you sure are disabled. You, you don't Both arms have been amputated. Yeah, you can't work. You have no arms to work with. But come to find out, this man's lazy. He didn't want to work. He hates working. And so he deliberately had his arms amputated. Is the government going to take care of that man and his family for the rest of their life because he went out and had his arms amputated? Seemed no good reason for them to do so. That's the condition of mankind. We don't want God. And so we have deliberately... Opposed God. Our inability stems from ourselves. It's not something God is injecting into us. It's from us ourselves. And we have confirmed that rebellion to God times without number by confirming what Adam did in the garden by rebelling ourselves. So here's the situation really. Man can't come because man won't come. You see, God does not hold us responsible to do something he hasn't equipped us to do. If he held you accountable to fly, you could say, wait a minute, Lord, you didn't give me wings. How can I fly without wings? That doesn't seem right. But God's not holding man accountable to fly. He's holding man accountable to repent. Does man have the natural equipment and faculties necessary to repent? Well, what does man need to be able to repent? I have a brain. Got to be able to think, right? And he's got to have a will. He has to be able to make a choice. Do unsaved people have a brain and a will? Yes. So they have the natural faculties that they need to repent. Their inability is not natural. And this is something I learned from Jonathan Edwards. It's not a natural inability. It's a moral inability. It's not that they couldn't come if they wanted to. They just don't want to. It's a moral inability. They have the equipment necessary, but their heart is so set against this idea of coming and bowing down before God and following Christ that they won't do it. And so because they don't want to, they find themselves in a a state where they can't. They're unable to do it. It's like Genesis 37.4. Do you remember the story of Joseph and Jacob gave him this coat of many colors, and he loved him more than all the twelve brothers. Well, notice this. This is a, a perfect example of moral inability. Genesis 37, 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, think about that statement. Joseph's brothers could not Speak to him on friendly terms. Well, why not? Didn't they have a mouth? (laughs) Didn't they have lips? Didn't they have a tongue? They had all the natural equipment they needed to speak to him on friendly terms, but they didn't have a heart to be able to do it. You see, man's inability comes from a, a wicked heart, a fallen, depraved heart that's cut off from God. If his heart was set right, he could repent like that. And his bad heart is his own fault. And he's accountable to God for that bad heart. Ian Murray, in a book called The Forgotten Spurgeon, makes this comment that I I love this when I first read the quote and I underlined it because it helped me. He said, man's spiritual inability is due solely to his sin and therefore it in no way lessens his responsibility. That man must be able to believe and repent in order to be responsible for unbelief and impenitency is a philosophical conception nowhere found in Scripture. In fact, it is directly contrary to Scripture because if responsibility were to be measured by ability, then it would mean that the more sinful a man becomes, the less he is responsible. I don't know if you followed that or not, but it's a powerful statement. The more sinful a person becomes, according to this view, the less responsible he is for his sin because he can't help himself. It's like a guy going before the judge and saying, judge, I couldn't help but kill my neighbor. I just hated him so bad I couldn't keep from pulling the trigger. Well, this judge is going to say, well, I understand totally. You can go scot-free. No, he's going to hold him responsible for that whether or not he was incapable of keeping himself from pulling the trigger or not, right? That's the, that's the case with sinners today. Their heart is dead set against God and opposed to God that they can't help but going on in sin. But God doesn't say, okay, you're scot-free, I'll just let you off the hook. No, He holds them accountable for their sin. Now, there, again, let me give you three schools of thought when it comes to this subject. There are those that say that man is not unable to repent. That's the Arminian school of thought. They say man can repent anytime he wants to. Nothing's stopping him. That's the one school of thought. Then there's a school of thought over here. This is the hyper-Calvinistic position. You maybe have never even heard the word. This takes biblical doctrine to an extreme. And this school of thought says man's not responsible for his not believing in Christ. They say, how could he be responsible? He's not able to. So they're, they're reasoning. They're coming to that. Position from reasoning, not scripture. It sounds logical, and it is logical. And so they hold over, it. man's not responsible to believe. It's not man's duty to believe. In fact, they don't even preach the gospel to lost people. There must be some sign that they're elect before they'll even preach to them. That's the hyper-Calvinistic position. So you've got the people over here. Man can repent anytime they want to. Over here, man's not responsible for unbelief. And then there's this middle position, which is the one that I have embraced, which says, no, man is unable to repent, and man is responsible for his sin, and I'm just going to live with the tension that that provides, because I think that's what the Bible teaches me. And I have to do business with this book. This is God's revelation. I can't just, like Spurgeon says, lop off a bough here or cut off a twig there of the forest of Scripture. If, it, if the Bible reveals something, then it's our duty to believe it and to communicate that. Okay, let's turn to a fifth question. What about the biblical teaching on free will? What about that teaching? Well, first of all, where is it in the Bible? That's what I would ask. What biblical teaching on free will? I took a concordance and looked up free will, and you know what? It appears about seven or eight times... Um, Every time it it occurs in the Bible, it's about the free will offerings in the Old Testament. It's not about man having a free will to make choices. So the, the, the phrase free will doesn't even come up in the Bible at all. If the concept is true, then we'd have to find that concept. We need to be careful how we define free will. If we mean by free will that man is a slave of sin and has the ability on his own to break free from sin and to choose Christ, that's not taught in this book. This book teaches that men are slaves of sin. They're chained. They can't break free. But if you mean by free will that all men are free to choose according to their nature, then absolutely. If you wanted to find free will that way, I would say absolutely man has a free will. All of us get to choose according to our nature. Nobody gets to choose contrary to his nature, not even God. God can't lie because it's contrary to his nature. God can't die because it's contrary to his nature. He can only make choices consistent with who he is. And friend, you and I, we can only make choices consistent with our nature, who we are. But God gives all mankind the freedom to make whatever choice they want consistent with their nature. Let's say there's a pig. And you want that pig to come be your pet and live in the house with you. And so you give the pig a choice. Okay, Mr. Pig, you can come live in my house and sleep on the couch. Or you can go live in that big uh, pig hole, that mud hole outside and wallow around in the mire. You you have a free will, Mr. Pig. What do you want to do? 100 out of 100 times, guess where the pig's going. (laughs) Back to the mud hole, Right. Now you say, okay, if I could just somehow change that pig's nature. I know. I'll take the spirit of my cat, take it out of my cat, and put that cat spirit into the pig. Guess what? Mr. Pig's coming to live in the house now because he's got a pig nature. I mean, a cat nature. And cats love to be clean. They love to curl up on your couch and be clean and wash themselves off. So what does God do in salvation? He takes out the pig nature. He puts in the divine nature. He changes the heart so that it's not gravitating towards sin. Now the heart gravitates to Christ and holiness and righteousness. See, that's how salvation works. There's got to be a change of nature or no one will ever be saved. Number six. Let's take a look at another question. How can sovereign election be true when so few people believe it? Now, that was a question I had when I first started stumbling upon these things in the Bible, like Romans chapter 9. Wait a minute, I don't know anybody else who believes that. How can it possibly be true? I've got to be wrong. I've got to be understanding the Bible wrong. Well, what's interesting is that Martin Luther spearheaded the Protestant Reformation. It started in about the year 1517. For the next 200 years, what I'm teaching you was the dominant thought within Christianity during that time. It was the majority view. There were some that did not believe it, but most evangelical Christians believed in the five doctrines of grace. It was also included in the creeds and confessions of the Reformed churches, the Presbyterian churches, the Baptist churches, the Anglican churches, and the congregational churches during that period of time. What I've been teaching you can be found in the Belgic Confession of 1561, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, the 39 Articles of the Church of England in 1563, the Second Helvetic Confession in 1566, the Canons of the Synod of Dort in 1619, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, the London Confession of 1689, and the New Hampshire Confession in 1833, among others. These are just a sampling of the creeds, historical creeds and confessions of the Church. And yes, in the 20th century, this was the minority view amongst evangelical Christians, the, the view of sovereign grace. But interestingly, within the last 25 years, there's been a tremendous resurgence of thought along reformed lines. I'm not ex- exactly sure how that happened, but a tremendous. I think John Piper has been one that God has used in a very powerful way here in America over the last 25 years or so. Um, there's been others. John MacArthur has been another advocate. You've got the Acts 29 churches that are all Reformed churches. Some of them are mega churches with thousands and thousands of people. Matt Chandler is one. Um, I don't know. God has just kind of raised up a new generation that believe that God is sovereign, Mm -hmm. that God saves sinners all by himself. Uh, This truth was taught by Augustine Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Hugh Latimer, William Tyndale, John Owen, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Matthew Henry, if you ever read his commentary, he believed in sovereign grace. George Whitfield, probably the greatest evangelist who has ever lived. And I'm not, um, what's that word? I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I've read his volume three times, two big books, 600 pages each. It was amazing what God did through this man. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest thinker that America produced. David Brainerd, the missionary to the Indians, Isaac Watts, John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, William Carey, the one who spearheaded the missions movement in the late 1700s, Robert Murray McShane, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, my hero, (laughs) Arthur W. Pink, and then Martin Lloyd-Jones, England's British uh, expositor. And that's just another sampling but so we're not talking about just this tiny tiny little fringe group of people believe this we're talking about mainstream christianity flowing out of the reformation movement okay let's look at number seven won't belief in sovereign grace put out the fires of evangelism in other words people say if i believe what you believe i'd never witness again why should i why should i witness if god has gotten the elect people that he's already chosen he's going to save them no matter what I can just sit down on my hands and just wait until Christ comes back, basically. Well, the person who reasons that way is not reasoning correctly because not only is does God ordain the end, God ordains the means that lead to the end. Does that make sense? He predestines the end, but He predestines the means that get to that end as well. So the means are preaching and witnessing and praying and loving all the things we do to try to bring people to christ those are the means god uses to bring them into his kingdom god has ordained those means and he's not going to save people apart from the means these are the means that he's ordained to bring them into his kingdom so if if you sit on your hands and wait for christ to come back god will save his people through somebody else but you won't have the joy of him using you And if you cooperate with God in using the means of preaching and witnessing and praying, you have the joy of working with your heavenly father to see his kingdom swell and fame and honor come to his son. How did Jesus, did Jesus decide that he was going to sit on his hands and just wait around for God to save his elect? No. Over in John chapter 10, notice what Jesus says. This is the passage on the good shepherd. In verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. What doctrine is that? I have other sheep. Unconditional election. They've already been chosen. But he goes on to say, I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. I have them, even though they're not even saved yet. In God's eternal decree, they're his. But I, he didn't say, well, since, since they're elect, I guess there's nothing for me to do. He says, I must bring them also. That's how Jesus responded to the truth of sovereign grace and our responsibility to go after sinners. Or let's take a look at the Apostle Paul. Go over to Second um, Timothy chapter 2. Have you ever wondered why Paul went to such great lengths? I mean, he went all over the world in his day preaching. Why was he willing to suffer so much? Well, he tells us in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason I endure all things. Why? For the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it, eternal glory paul labored and endured he didn't sit on his hands and wait around for jesus to come he labored mightily he says by the grace of god i've labored more than all of you he says so will the well belief in sovereign grace put out the fires of evangelism it didn't with jesus it didn't with paul and i can testify in my own life it didn't with me either if anything i became more zealous to preach the gospel after i started to believe these truths and as i've said some of the greatest and most evangelistic men in the history of the church have believed in the sovereign grace of God. I mentioned George Whitfield a while ago. Um, now that's not to downplay anybody else. A contemporary of his was John Wesley. John Wesley did not believe in sovereign grace and they butted heads on this issue. They disagreed. Wesley was zealous for souls. So was Whitfield. It didn't make a difference in their Christianity. This truth did. Both of them were out to get the lost and they expended themselves day and night To see the lost come to Christ. Okay, let's look at question number eight. How can I know if I'm one of God's elect? That's really the most important question. Because everything I've taught you hangs on that. God's sovereign grace is for His elect. If you're not one of His elect, then you won't receive that grace. How can you know whether you are or whether you're not? Now, it would be great if we could just kind of climb a ladder into heaven and look at the Lamb's Book of Life and look up our name, but we don't get to do that. Well, how else could we know then? I would say you need to be very careful here. I think many people simply assume they are. And some people are self-deceived. I've ta- witnessed to many, many, many people and once you get a little deeper in talking to them about their relationship with God or supposed relationship with God, you know it's built on sand. They're trusting in themselves. But they, they would say, yeah, I'm one of the elect. I'm going to heaven. Absolutely. Be very careful that you don't make this, the mistake of just assuming something that's not true about you. Uh, over in Matthew 7, you remember where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven many not a few many will say to me on that day lord i prophesied in your name i worked many miracles i did many miraculous works but i will say to them depart from me you workers of iniquity i never knew you now if you were to interview those people they would say oh yeah i'm absolutely sure i'm one of god's elect i work miracles I prophesy in his name. Jesus said, I never even knew you. We never even had a relationship. So they were assuming something about themselves that simply was not true. And I don't want anyone here to make that mistake. So what are the biblical marks that a person is not only chosen before the foundation of the world, but has been saved by God's invincible grace? How can they know whether they've been actually saved and will infallibly be with God forever. I'm just going to give you some. And we're not going to take the time to look up the scriptures. If you want to jot them down, you can. But here are 12 marks. Number one, he has as his ambition to please the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9. That's a mark of a true child of God. He wants to please God. Two, he does not practice sin. Oh yes, he will sin, but he won't practice it. He will repent of it. He will be disciplined by the Lord. First John chapter three, verse nine says that one who's born of God does not practice sin. Number three, he practices righteousness. That's the bent of his life to do righteousness. First John chapter three, verse 10. Number four, he loves the brethren. He loves other Christians. Folks, if you, if you just can't stand other Christians, something's wrong. <laughs> Birds of a feather flock together. If you are a genuine child of God, your heart's going to be linked to other genuine ch- children of God. You're going to want to be with them. Number five. He believes that Jesus is the Christ. 1 John 5, verse 1. I, I don't think I gave you the reference for he loves the brethren. It's 1 John 3, 14. First John 5 1 says that he lo- that he believes that Jesus is the Christ. Here's number 6. He has been given a new heart and a new spirit. So his heart has been changed. If you can never look back on your life and see that there was a time when God changed your heart, think seriously and deeply about whether you're actually saved or not. Cause that happens when you're saved. The heart changes. That's Ezekiel 36 verse 26. Here's another one. He is a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5:17. Has that ever happened to you? Where you became a new person. All the old stuff, that's gone. Everything's become new in my life. Okay, here's another one. He's been made spiritually alive. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. He has been made alive together with Christ. Here's another. He loves the Lord, one Corinthians sixteen twenty-two. He loves Jesus. He loves him and he wants to please him. Wants to do his will. Another one. He's indwelt by Jesus Christ, two Corinthians thirteen verse five. Christ is in him, the hope of glory. Here's another one. He experiences the Holy Spirit bearing witness with his spirit that he is a child of God, Amen. Romans chapter eight verse sixteen. There is some kind of a connection that the spirit bears with your human spirit and he communicates to you that God's your father, you're his child. That's one of the ways that we have assurance of salvation. And then the last one, he is disciplined by the Lord when he pursues sin. If you can go on in sin with a clear conscience and God doesn't come after you spanking you, maybe you're not his child at all. God will get you. If you're his own child, he's not going to let you go back into sin. Just like with Peter, when he uh, denied the Lord three times, he got him. The Lord restored him. He brought him back. 2 Peter 1.10 says, Be all the more diligent to make his calling and choosing of you certain. That's a command that is laid upon every child of God. God wants you to be all the more diligent, which means to make every effort to make God's election of you and His calling of you certain. If you have doubt in that area, well, how would you do that? You, you would give yourself to the earlier part of 2nd Peter chapter 1, which says that, um, we start off with, knowledge and we go on there to self-control and then to brotherly kindness and to love and there's a whole list of things he says that we're to pursue so you pursue Christ and you pursue the Christian life and assurance wells up in your heart over time and you make your calling and election sure that way so i, I hope that i have addressed the questions that you had i wasn't sure because no one texted me or emailed me this week so i had to just go on what i thought the questions would be that you had um If you are uncertain as to whether you're a Christian today, seek God. Repent. God's holding you responsible today, right now, to repent. It's your duty to do that. You must do that. He's holding you responsible to believe right now, today, not to put it off, not to wait for the Spirit to move. He's calling you to believe. He's calling you to repent. And if you don't know whether you're a true child of God, my counsel is get alone with God and really do business with Him. Pour out your heart to Him. Confess your sins to Him. Grieve over your sins. Trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Put your full trust there. Take it off of anything that you've ever done or ever will do and say, Jesus is all my righteousness. My trust is in Him alone. And if you will trust in the Lord, the Bible says, He will save you. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have assurance, biblical assurance that you're a child of God, man, rejoice, worship, love the Lord, walk in freedom, Enjoy God. I mean, these are the things. If if you believe God has shed his sovereign grace on you, then just live with joy and seek to bring as many other people as you possibly can into his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your wonderful, wonderful grace. Even if we spent all year talking about it, it it would never grow tiring to us, Lord, because we love the sound of your gospel published the glad tidings of eternal life through Jesus Christ. I pray, the Lord, that you would, in some measure, use this message to dispel doubts and fears and things like that that people might be dealing with, confusion. Lord, take that away and fill them with joy and peace and love instead. In Jesus' name, amen.